I'm Sherry Greco-Rikus, co-founder of Rappaport Rikus Capital Management. Welcome to the Maximize Your Return on Life podcast. As an investment advisor, I guide clients to reflect upon their core values as they make major life decisions. I will be interviewing real people with real stories who have embraced this approach to achieve success. I hope their stories will inspire you to maximize your return on life. Welcome, Beata Kerr. I'm so excited to have her on the podcast today. I've known her for many, many years. We both worked at Bernstein Private Wealth, but missed each other by just a few years. She's been a role model to me and many others, and you're going to see why. She has a long, long list of accomplishments that we'll have on the website, but today I just want to highlight a few. She is currently Managing Director and Chief Impact Officer for Copia, and we're going to talk about what an impact officer is on the podcast. Previously, she served as Co-Head of Investment Strategies for Bernstein Private Wealth's $100 billion investment platform. She is very proud of spearheading the creation of Bernstein Impact Alternatives. She is a strong women advocate and extremely involved in the community. She's an independent director from Macquarie Asset Management. She serves on the investment committee for the Poetry Foundation and Congregation Sukkot Shalom and previously served on the board of Women Employed. She is a member of the National Charity League and Northwestern University Council of 100. Beata came to the States at the age of five. We're going to talk about her move to the States, her career path, how she used her values to make her last career change, how we can empower more women to enter the finance investment world, and how she maximizes her return on life. So welcome, Beata. And maybe let's start at the beginning. Let's start about you coming to the States. Well, thank you, Sherry. And it is such a pleasure to reunite in this way. And I just want to say congratulations to you on this awesome podcast and your journey on helping people maximize their return on life. I love your focus on values and mission and fully agree uh, with that work in terms of driving not only your investments, but, but your choices. Okay, so you asked me to start from the beginning. I didn't have a lot to do with it. I was at the early age of four when my parents decided to emigrate from what was then the Soviet Union. Of course, it is now the former Soviet Union, and the country that I was born in is a country called Latvia, now a member of the European Union and actually the Eastern Front of NATO, so it's a good country for everybody to know its existence. But in short, my parents came um, for a better life, right, like all immigrants do. I'm an only child. They made that choice. Uh, we were fortunate to have a U.S. community that was advocating for Jewish refugees to leave the Soviet Union, given rampant anti-Semitism at that time. Obviously, an important moment to be acknowledging that history right now. Um, but long story short, we were sponsored by the Jewish Community Center. We started our lives in St. Louis. I did not speak English uh, for six months. I didn't speak at all which I know for anybody that knows me is really shocking, <laughs> but it's a traumatic thing to you know, leave your family at that point, my grandparents, some of whom I never saw again, and watch my parents really rebuild their lives from scratch. We started in public housing. Uh, both my parents were scientists and they did quickly find work. Uh, my father was a doctor and had to really remake 
his medical history and medical credentials um, in the United States. And my mother was a chemist, proudly working at Monsanto. So those were the beginnings, I guess, you know, St. Louis, from Riga, Latvia to St. Louis <laughs> when I was five. And then you ended up at Highland Park. We both went to the same high school, so we have a lot of common. That too, yeah. And I know uh, education was a big value for your parents. No doubt. So they both had advanced degrees. And one thing they kept repeating since the very tender age of five was something along the lines of, you know, in Russian, of course, look, Viata, we came here for you, no pressure or anything. We don't have a network. We can't help you. So you're kind of on your own and figure it out. <laughs> Education <laughs> is really the best way forward. I mean, they were obviously very supportive, but if anybody has read the book, Battle Him of the Tiger Mother, there were a lot of similarities in how I was raised and that mindset of no pressure or anything, but you know, we expect you to get a very good education because as far as we know, my parents, that education was going to be the path that opens doors. And it turned out they were right about that for me, for sure. And I know you went to Wharton and what, what brought you to the passion of business and investment and numbers? Mm. So I went to Wharton. Um, I was very fortunate to get in. I'm pretty sure today I could not get in again. It's incredible. Oh, I think the college could. application <laughs> process looks like right now. My parents, you know, zooming out the, the, the concept of a liberal arts education really didn't exist in the Soviet Union because that education was really a high school education. And then college looked much more like a vocational degree. And of course, in a country with so many scientists, I looked at my parents and said, as many kids do, I don't want to be them. So I didn't want to be a doctor. I didn't want to be a scientist. Here they are telling me I have to figure this out and be on my own and be financially independent. So I watched a lot of TV. I liked the looks of LA law, you know, these people in suits. I thought, I don't know what that looks like, but that might be interesting. And, you know, big city, people carrying briefcases, business. What is that? Right. And I figured out that getting a degree in finance might be something that is practical, might help me get a job that could pay my loans. And so honestly, Sherry, the answer to how I got to Wharton and both how I got to Wall Street with my first job at Goldman Sachs was not because my parents talked about investing. It was not because I read the Wall Street Journal. It was simply because I needed to be financially independent. And this was a path that seemed to offer that. And so that's how I started on Wall Street um, without a mentor, without anybody guiding me along the way to explain this career and this industry but simply because it helped me pay off a really large amount of loans. Which is, you know, very interesting because often people take a job because of the financial rewards. But after talking to you, I think it's you also have a passion for this business as well. It's just not financial rewards for you. It's not. Of course, it's not. But, you know, I'm going back to when I was 21 right. and thinking about the loans and thinking about my parents right. and thinking about their influence. And really just trying to check the boxes and do what was quote unquote right, what was going to set me up for success with this mindset of independence. And then I stepped foot on Wall Street, you know, young, naive, innocent, if you will, 21 year old at Goldman Sachs. It was an incredible experience to be in investment banking um, and then capital markets. I had the experience of the trading floor. I had the experience of taking companies public. I was, I, I spent a lot of time carrying bags and creating limousine schedules, <laughs> working 100 hour weeks, very humbling, very humbling career choice. However, I still say to people coming out of college, if they want to establish themselves in finance, I still think that that is a really grounding and valuable experience to start in investment banking. 
And going back when you were at Goldman, and I even know at Bernstein, because when I was there, there's very few women. Um, how did that feel to be a woman in these in in the man's world of the investments? Well, Sherry, I think my view on that, my lens on that certainly changed over what is now almost a 30 year history of working. When you're young, you don't really notice it. You don't speak up about it. I did form lifelong friendships. We had some tearful moments at 3 a.m. in bathrooms, and that's real. You know, we hit our breaking point many times just because of the hours that we were working and some of the situations we faced, but we didn't know any different. This was the world that we entered. And actually the analyst class was pretty diverse. Now, as it turns out, the women thin out over time. I was very fortunate to work for the majority of my career at you know one firm where you worked and I worked and had a wonderful career there and didn't feel like um, in any way, I was disadvantaged because of who I was or how I sounded or how I looked. I felt incredibly supported um, and I was able to make change. And some of that really on behalf of women, most recently, when I found my voice and really rose up to leadership roles, I started to realize that it was important to speak up on behalf of others because I didn't necessarily have so many mentors along the way that I could speak to. And that was valuable to be able to help guide others. Yeah, and I always kind of used it to my advantage because I felt different. You know, when you walked in, sometimes we had these Monday morning meetings and it was all the guys. And then there were two women mm -hmm. in there. And I'm like, you know, I'm using this to my advantage. And women, I'm a, you were more on the portfolio side. I was more on the investment and the financial planning. But women like to work with women and women like to see women succeed. And I know you've been a huge advocate. Um, I, when I was a, uh, at the previous firm and in most of my life, I've really tried to advocate for women because uh, my dad had passed away when I was younger and I saw my mom really not understand all the financial aspects of it. And so I've been kind of on a mission to educate women. And I know you've done that as well. Yeah, I think, again, here too, you don't realize the power of your voice. You know, Madeline Albright mm -hmm. has this quote around um, that she was silent for a long time. I'm going to misattribute it, but something to the effect of that she only learned how to use her voice later in life. But when she did, she never stopped talking. And I think there's something very similar with what happened to me, right? Because I really viewed myself as on a trajectory and working my way up and trying to do the right thing and check the boxes and follow the rules for a very long time. And then there was a moment, I think really in 2017, when I realized, wait a second, I am now in a national leadership position. My voice matters. I have to stop doubting myself and my voice because somebody else just told me that I'm qualified to be in this leadership position. And even at that time, not having people reporting to me, I felt that it was time to use it. And so one of the things I'm really proud of in my former life is creating this conversation for women called Women in Wealth. And that was created because I felt the difference when I saw women at the other end of the table feeling more comfortable being able to engage, not feeling intimidated to ask questions, not worried about how their question was going to be viewed. So really wanted to create a forum for that engagement. And then that grew to be a podcast and events. And I was so fortunate to be in the seat that not only engaging with women externally, but as it turns out, that programming really helped lift women internally. And shame on me that I never thought about that connection, that it would really have that impact to bring more women to the firm because they felt like their voice was heard. And so I'm really proud of that. And, you know, I hope to continue that. I know that firm will continue that legacy. And I think it's just now I try to continue it one-on-one -on -one and by 
backing women business owners in my new entity here at the Copia Group. I love that quote. You'll have to give it to me later from Marilyn Albright, because, you know, we kind of grow up, be good girls, be quiet, do your job, keep your head down. And if you work hard enough, you'll get promoted. But I think as women, we do have a voice and we have to advocate for ourselves and advocate for other women. So I, I love that quote. I want to get that from you. So, you know, your career path, I know you went to Goldman, then you were on Wall Street, but you recently um, made a change. Can you talk about why and what the change is? Yeah, it's hard to make change. Let me just start with that, that it takes bravery. It takes um, fortitude. It takes knowing who you are. And people told me that when I was considering the change, you know, you're really going to learn a lot about yourself. You're going to see what your skills are, not what your company's skills are. And I didn't appreciate that until now where I'm really six months into the seat. But let me back up and just say for anybody considering change, you have to acknowledge that it's scary and that you have to be brave. But at the same time, it's really worth doing if it's something you're passionate about. And so as we discussed, I was thrilled with a 16-year career at this firm that we both worked at. I felt um, incredibly honored to be in an um, executive leadership role, to have oversight along with my co-head of a very large you know, $100 billion in assets, and to have affected change. And I realized after 16 years you know, that it affected a lot of change, um, and some of that change I was more passionate about than others. For example, really working on what's called the impact investing or ESG investing, different verbs, different acronyms for it, um, got me really excited thinking about returns, not just from a risk adjusted return standpoint, but thinking about other ways to measure success, whether it was growing governance, growing diversity, growing economic opportunity or environmental outcomes or health equity. I thought the companies that were focused on this, the investments that were here were really interesting. And I also thought it was best executed in the private markets. And I really thought, wow, it's such a difficult decision to think about leaving uh, what a fortunate position I was in, but an opportunity presented itself here locally to really be a founding team member for a fund and a firm that is raising capital to provide capital to primarily diverse business owners. And there's just a huge lending gap and a huge capital access gap, whether you're a person of color or whether you're a woman, unfortunately, there's been systemic bias um, that's really prevented these businesses from having equitable access. And so that's what the Copia Group is about. It's about bridging that gap. It's about providing that capital. It's about preserving founder equity and providing credit for an important period of growth for the business. So in short, Sherry, um, I agonized and agonized and thought and thought it was very, very difficult to change. It's very, I keep saying it, it's very scary to lift everything up that really was your identity and start from scratch. Um, but it was my values that really drove me to do that. I had written in a notebook um, at the time that I started thinking about this, purpose, passion, um, and impact. I think those were the three words, purpose, passion, and impact. <laughs> um, and I thought, how do I do that? How do I achieve this blend of these three things the most? And even though I had a lot of it in my former job, I wanted it to be 100% of my focus. And so that value work of really 
listening to yourself and saying what's important to you right now was the the leading driver for the change. And I, a couple of comments here. We both, you know, came from the previous firm and I don't know if we could have done what we're doing now if we hadn't worked there because mm-hmm. I learned so many things um, working at the other firm. But uh, change is scary, but it's often good. But I know you're a financial person. I often advise clients when you're making these big changes, you got to also look at the financial side because you are Mm -hmm. taking a chance and it's so comfortable to stay where you are and getting the income that you're getting. And it comes in every, every month, but you're, you took a, you're going to a new firm and it's an entrepreneurial risk. I took an entrepreneurial risk starting my firm, but it's exciting, but I think you can um, have a lot more peace of mind if you know that your financial house is in order when you make these changes. Yeah, and you're totally right. That I feel very privileged, again, not only to have had the opportunities I had in my last role, but to have been able to take a risk like this is not something that I could have ever considered doing You know, 20 years ago, right? Um, that 20 years ago, it was all about the next step and the next step and the next step. And Mm -hmm. then you suddenly realize, well, how much is enough? And what do I really need? And what's important for me now? And again, I'm just going to say it again. It's scary. It takes getting used to. I don't think I was a born entrepreneur because I wasn't. I was not a risk taker. I was following the rungs of the ladder that were kind of neatly put in front of me. And every time along the way, I kept thinking, is it me? It's like, do, am I qualified? Should I be on this ladder? <laughs> right. I had imposter syndrome along the way. And so it was really unusual for me to take a leap. And it's a big, huge leap. Like you said, it wasn't a leap to another firm doing the same thing. I had no interest in that. It was simply about doing something very different and building something. And I just have mad respect for our you know, primary founder, our managing partner who, who took the biggest leap of all um, I'm coming on board for that leap, but I'm not the primary founder. And it, it takes a tremendous amount of courage and strength to see it through. And you know that because you've done it 18 years now. <laughs> yeah, I remember uh, taking that risk 18 years ago, but it's been a great ride. But you and I talked and, and another big point was that you ended up going to the firm with someone you had worked at previously. And I always tell, I have daughters and I tell young adults, you know, keep those connections because you never know when those connections come back. And it's kind of a joke in our industry. You know, you got to respect and be good to everyone because with all the mergers, you may end up working together at some point. But can you kind of tell how you got back in touch with the founder and a little bit about the founder? Because I feel that his history is so interesting. It is. His name is Chandran Thomas. And a lot of people ask me to say it twice because it's not a common name. So it's Chandran Thomas. And he was a very senior executive um, at a large bank in town. And he was on the executive team. Um, You know, he was a listed officer when he left. He was there 18 years. And so his departure was, you know, a very big deal. But in short, we had worked together at Goldman Sachs now 20 years ago. And boy, are you right to point out that advice to our younger listeners, for sure, that you really need to build bridges throughout your career, no matter what adversity you face, right? And especially in financial services, you're going to face organizations that shut down. You're going to face layoffs. You're going to face economic cycle. I mean, this is a high beta industry, as we say, right? Financial services and technology tend to swing the most. So if you're going to build a long career in this space, it's really good to find those people. 
um, that you really respect. Keep up those conversations. And sometimes you keep them up on social media. It's not like you have to be having coffee every six months, but just really pinging people, respecting what they're doing, showing that support for their work. And that's how Shandran and I had stayed in touch. But 20 years ago when we met, he really stood out. Um, he's an incredibly talented person. He grew up on the South Side, um, went to Walter Payton, got full scholarships at quite a few schools, was you know an honor roll student, just a tremendous talent, incredibly hardworking, um, early in his family to go to school and go to college, um, coming from an upbringing where that was a stretch and not a given, right? Again, the importance that we have, the similarities or that education was valued by our family, but the access to it and the ability to get there just simply was different. So Chandran really forged his own path um, and went to University of Chicago for business school. And then it was post that business school time that we met at Goldman Sachs. At that time, he was also a reverend on the weekends. So he's written several books and you know has delivered many a, you know, quote unquote sermon. I haven't been to his real sermons um, in church, but I feel like I've been a beneficiary of his life sermons, right? Of his belief, um, the strengths of his beliefs that really tied us together and, and reunited us. It's it's really interesting because I'm not a religious person myself, um, but how we came back together was effectively that we both had very, very similar visions for what we thought was important in our lives at the this moment. You know, I don't know if he did an exercise with values cards like I did, but what, you know, he got there to that same conclusion that the time was now to focus on this and what this looked like when I reunited with him, I basically laid out a vision for what he was already building. And I laid out a vision for this role titled the chief impact officer that he knew he needed. And then it was just incredible timing because it was really two weeks before he left and all of that was public. But here I showed up to say, this is what I'm interested in. This is my story. And those stories obviously um, got really interwoven after you know a couple of months of engagement and talking about how we could work together. So I you know, might be turning religious <laughs> because <laughs> it's pretty faithful how that occurred, right? It really makes you think. And then if you think about each of the people at Copia, we're a five person team, our first week together, we each sat down and talked about how we got connected to Copia and what was our why and what was our value system. And it just took my breath away because everybody had a story that was incredibly powerful in terms of timing and how they came to be part of this venture. And it really doesn't feel accidental. So it was quite incredible. So, so two things. Glad you kept talking because we said uh, before, if you keep talking, good things happen and you kept the communication up. But I also um, started thinking as you were explaining, values do change over time. So 20 years ago, your values might have been very different than they are today. And it sounds like when you guys all got together and you talked about it, this was the right time the right place for the values today. So um, just for our listeners, can you, what kind of clients would be great fits for Copia? Uh, what kind of people are you talking to? Yeah, and, and thank you for the question. Um, we are a, a private fund, so we're not you know, allowed to market broadly to a broad group of people. So you have to be a qualified purchaser to invest with us. And so that means that 
a higher end client is what we're looking for because we're illiquid in our, um, how we allocate capital. Um, but we, you know, the people that are interested in investing with us are interested in private credit. Private credit is a really compelling space right now. And, you know, what is private credit? It's this idea that we're providing loans for businesses. These businesses are private businesses. These businesses are in what's called the lower middle market. They're successful cash flowing businesses. And they're not necessarily getting access to the capital that they need to grow. And that's compelling because the loans that we're providing have, you know, pretty high yields at the moment. So low teens type returns. And so I think for people that understand the asset class of private credit, we're interesting. Um, and then I think people that want to invest with a racial equity lens, with a gender diversity lens, with this idea around the S in ESG, there's been a lot of investments focused on the E, on environment, and a lot less focused on the S as I think firms and, and um you know, investors have struggled with how do we progress on the S? And we think that, you know, this idea that we focus on inclusive mobility, that we're really looking for a lens of how can employees progress through a company and in a way where there's real psychological safety and diversity in the workforce is how we're going to be judging the companies that we deploy capital to. So hopefully that answers your question. Oh, that's perfect. And we'll leave information about Beata on the website. And I encourage anyone who has these interests to talk to her because it's really a fascinating, unbelievable uh, strategy that they've come up with on all levels. Um, so I'm going to switch gears a little bit, and I don't think we can solve this on the podcast today, but how can we empower more women to enter the finance investment world? Um. Well, first of all, I think it's really exciting right now to have this view that I now have, which is meaningfully different than the Wall Street view. And the reason I say this is now I'm seeing this broader world of allocators that sit in very different places, you know, because I grew up really in Wall Street, whether it was a bank or an investment advisor, it was still big publicly traded firms in, in this Wall Street type culture. I think it's important to point out that finance and investments have lots of different avenues. And one of the observations I've had in the last six months is I'm seeing a lot more women that I'm engaging with now. And where am I seeing them? In the foundation investing world, in the family office investing world, in the pension investing world. For whatever set of reasons, it appears that the cultures or dynamics of entering that space as an investor, you know, may be more conducive for, for women to be successful. So I would just point that out as an observation that just incredible talent lives within the walls outside of official Wall Street. So that's number one. So open your eyes to the broader world of you know, possibilities. But within the Wall Street world, which I think still dominates um, the, the career trajectory of many people who are interested in finance, I think flexibility is key. And I think most firms have recognized that you know five days all feet on the ground in the office is not a, a world that's gonna work for a lot of people. Second of all, I think firms have recognized the importance of diversity to their workforce, um, not as a nice to have, but as a must have because their client base is changing. And therefore, you know, obviously the population is changing as well. The more they make the workforce conducive, the more they'll be successful in attracting a diverse population of clients. So I think firms have taken great lengths to partner up with internship programs to provide real channels for entry and also channels for staying. And whether they're returnship programs after you've taken a few years off in the workforce, 
I mean, it's really not that long ago that a couple of years off was viewed as a penalty on a resume, but it's a different lens that you look at it through now. And I think most recruiters and firms get that. So I think just the possibilities of flex time, returnships, flexibility in the workplace and a recognition that all voices matter. I, I think maybe we're at the beginning of a whole new dawn for diversity at work in the finance industry. I think it is happening. Yeah. And I think a lot had changed during COVID, you know, with more hybrid schedules and people are realizing you don't have to be in the office to be productive. And sometimes you're more productive outside the office. So, you know, I would encourage a lot of uh, women listeners go for it. It is a unbelievable career. You're talking to two women that have spent their lives in this career. And I don't, I don't think I would have ever done anything else. I've just loved every minute and we feel like we're helping people and it's, it's just great. So my last question that I ask everyone is um, besides your work, how do you maximize your return on life? Wow, this is a, a learned skill, Sherry. I don't think I always maximize my return on life. I'm going to admit that. I think there was a tremendous amount of sacrifice involved in our careers. I think it is a 24-7 world and in investing, especially as an allocator or as an advisor. I mean, you know, you could be talking to clients at 11 p.m. if they're going through a, a horrible life event. And then, of course, the markets could care less about your personal life, <laughs> right? So let's just acknowledge that. I think it took me until my mid-40s probably to say, I'm going to establish hobbies and other priorities outside of work. But one of the things that I would say, my family would answer this as, you know, trip planning and just taking adventures and being out and about in a way, whether it's big trips or local adventures, that I try to do with our family. And I'm definitely the lead organizer and executor of those. Um, one highlight for us last year is we went to um, Machu Picchu and we, we and hiking do not get along. So a lot of people ask, did you hike? Did you do the Inca trail? The answer is no. We took the train to the top, but nonetheless, we got to the top of Machu Picchu. And it was a trip that was delayed three years over COVID and the country and the people and the warmth that we experienced there, we just can't recommend it enough. It was the best experience. What a fascinating, fascinating history. Um, and just, it's inexplicable how anybody could have built Machu Picchu. It really is yeah. inexplicable. Um, so it's a, it's a world wonder that I would highly recommend people see. I felt like that was maximizing our return on life, getting there. <laughs> Not, not to make you feel bad, Beata, but my daughter just hiked the Inca Trail last week. But, <laughs> but she, to make me feel but bad. she's also 27 <laughs> or 28 years old. So she went with the group and would not have been a trip that I would have done. But, you know, I, I do encourage all the listeners <laughs> find something that that gives you passion. It could be taking a walk at the lake. It could be going to Machu Picchu, but try to maximize your return on life. And I have found uh, being a working woman who's worked full time that I really value the trips. I need to get away. I need to unplug, be with the family because you'll hear things at dinner or breakfast that just, we're all busy. The kids are at school. They're at their activities. We're working. But when you can just spend some time and we've had some staycations in Chicago, it's a great city and there's a lot to do here. So um, I'm glad to see you're, you're doing that. I think we have some pictures that we will show of Beata's family and, and it's great, but just want to thank you, Beata. I've, I'm so glad that we've gotten reintroduced again and got back in touch because I've been following your career from afar. And I remember when you posted on LinkedIn about your career change, um, it just, it, 
it just felt like home when I read that because I do think you need your values to guide you. And can you repeat again that it was PPI, it was passion, purpose, and what impact. Of, impact. So I that's that's a new one. I might have to write a blog about that, the PPI, mm -hmm. but that's not mm -hmm. the PPI that they're talking about on Wall Street. But I know. <laughs> but I do encourage everyone you, you sometimes and, and it sounded like you just took a blank piece of paper and started thinking about this. And sometimes you just need to do that. And we've both have enjoyed all of our careers, um, but it's, you know, sometimes it is time for a change. But if you'd like to learn more about how you can maximize your return on life, uh, please visit our website, Rappaport Rikus Capital Management, our capital com and we'd be happy to talk with you about your financial planning and incorporating your values and maximizing your return on life. Thank you for being a guest and I know we will have a lot to talk about for a long long time and good luck with the new venture. I know that you're going to be a success and the firm will be a success. So thank you. Thank you so much Sherry. It was a pleasure to spend time with you.